Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's Wednesday, April 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Inflation ticks up again to a new four-decade high of 8.5%. This is now the sixth straight month of inflation over 6%. The current rate of inflation continues to be driven by high energy costs and more rises in grocery prices. Some economists hope that we are hitting a peak as prices in some sectors begin to ease, but the overall problem persists. Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, a new proposal in California would shorten the work week to four days and force overtime beyond that. The plan would apply to companies with more than 500 employees and could in effect raise employees' wages by 25%, increasing costs for employers. There are currently pilot projects with 38 companies exploring the effects of switching to a four-day work week. Wes Venteicher, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, joins us for more. Finally, health experts with the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force will be issuing draft guidance that all children as young as eight years old should be screened for anxiety. One of the things they point to is the effect that the pandemic has had on young kids and also an increase in numbers of kids aged 6 to 17 that have been diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what's in the recommendation. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Too many families are struggling to keep up with their bills. Inflation is robbing them of gains they thought otherwise they would be able to feel. Joining us now is Gwen Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Gwen. Thanks for having me. Well, inflation 
persists. Right now, we're at a 40-year high. We've been at a 40-year high for a couple months now, <laughs> but we're just setting that new 40-year high right there. It's uh, Inflation is now at 8.5%. So what we've been having is is six straight months of inflation above 6%. I mean, that's we're seeing the effects everywhere, rising prices of just about everything. It's easing in some little sectors, but not enough, right? We're, we're just facing this uphill battle and how to fix it. So, Gwen, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with these continually rising prices? So the big story this month is, or in March was energy prices were through the roof again. And some of that had to do with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that pushed up oil prices a bunch, and then that fed through to gasoline prices. But gasoline prices were already really high. So it's basically like this huge inflationary pressure that economists expected to start easing by now because, gosh, it kind of had to. No, not going to ease. Food prices are up a ton, and grocery prices are up. You know, they increased 1.5% over the course of March. And that is just, that is really hitting people's budgets hard. But, you know, you have basically all the stories that we've talked about as we've been like, why is inflation going crazy right now? Throughout the last year or so, you know, you have supply chains. Those continue to be messed up in China's COVID lockdown. That's not helping things at all. You know, ports are shut down, production's pulled back. And, you know, you have household furnishings going up a bunch. And then you have like what always happens when we come out of a COVID wave where, you know, airfare and hotels go up a bunch. Airline tickets went up 10.7% in March from February. That, that's a lot. Yeah. And so you just have, and then you just have the strong demand in the economy pushing up on everything else. And so it's sort of like all of these forces broke on, on the economy in March. And then we get 8.5%. <laughs> right. Huge. Yeah. When, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, the invasion of Ukraine and China, at least on the Ukraine front, it looks like things could be getting worse as, you know, they're major wheat producers. So that's kind of a longer term thing that we still have yet to see really hit us. Uh, in China, maybe that could be getting better. I saw a story about how they're easing some of the lockdown restrictions, probably not enough to get back to full manufacturing schedules, but hopefully that can ease a little bit. Economists are saying that, you know, they're trying to look for any evidence that we might be hitting a peak. What do we know about that? Yeah, we probably did hit the peak. We're probably at the peak in March. And well, that's for a bunch of reasons. You know, energy prices do seem like they might have been topping out in March. They've come down a little bit. Gasoline prices have come down a little bit. And the COVID situation in China seems like it might be getting a little bit better. And, uh, you know, there are used car prices. That's the one story that yeah. actually I said, you know, all of these forces broke on the economy. This Well, the one exception is that, you know, this whole time, with the exception of February, like used car prices have been really driving so much of inflation because there's just like there aren't enough cars for people to buy. And so used car prices declined in March. They fell 3.8% in March from February. And so that like took a, a lot of pressure off, you know, that headline number. And will that continue? Yeah, probably in bits and pieces, like from month to month, it'll start coming down a bit. And that's going to really take some of the heat off inflation because that's been a huge factor for the last year. One of the economists you spoke to said that you know the burden of these price rises could be triggering a consumer pullback. What does that mean exactly? People are just going to start buying less because they can't afford it. And how does that impact what's going on with inflation? Yeah, that's uh, people 
spend less or they shift into, they buy other things, they buy cheaper things. Like one of the guys I talked to for the story, he's got five kids and he's been trying to come up with these ways because five kids, really expensive, right? Of sort of like trimming those costs a little bit. So he was trying to, um, he bought some cheap, generic Lucky Charms, basically, marshmallow cereal, and put them in a Lucky Charms box and tried to pass it off as Lucky Charms. His kids were like, no, 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 that's not, that, you're not fooling us. These aren't the right You got to get the Lucky Charm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So things like that where, but, you know, that's like a marginal thing, but, you know, he's thinking about, you know, maybe, maybe the kids don't have summer camp this summer. So those are the ways that you start to see people pull back. That doesn't mean necessarily that, the raw volume, the raw amount of spending comes down because prices are still going up. But people are experiencing their spending differently because they're like getting less. They're getting crummy Lucky Charms or whatever, <laughs> off-brand Lucky Charms and not going to camp. So that hits sentiment. Right. And then those things already, American consumers are pretty unhappy right now. What about wages? Because we're seeing some wages rise. Employers are setting aside money to give their employees raises and all, but it's just going too slow to offset what is happening with inflation. Yeah, that you're hitting on the crux of sort of what's going to happen. So if people's wages aren't keeping up with inflation, so their living standard is eroding a little bit. And either they are dissatisfied with that and pull back on their spending and, you know, the economy slows down or they accept higher prices, but they go to their bosses and say, okay, I'm going to need more money a lot more money to keep up with inflation. And their bosses are like, oh, okay, let me give you that raise and I'm going to go ahead and raise my prices. And then you start to have inflation become baked into the economy at a certain level and that's going to make it really hard to bring it down. And that is what could become more deeply problematic for the economy going forward than maybe like slowing down from this pretty hot period of consumer spending. Gwyn Guilford, economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That we're hearing time and time again about greater worker flexibility. That's what workers are demanding. And this provides us an opportunity to reimagine the workforce, uplifting the voice of workers, while also helping to ensure that we can do the type of things in a more efficient manner and also taking care of our family and our loved ones. Joining us now is Wes Venteicher, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thanks for joining us, Wes. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Well, everybody would love to start working a little bit less. Uh, In California, there's a new proposal that would shorten the work week to four days, and it would force overtime pay beyond that. So this would apply to companies with more than 500 employees, and the standard work week, the new format would be 32 hours or four eight-hour days. So some interesting stuff going on right here. There's been attempts to do this before, or people do this in other countries. Uh, So Wes, tell us some more about this. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a surprising proposal to me. But as I learned more about it, I saw that this idea is not all that new. It's been around since at least 1970, uh, when the New York Times was reporting on proposals from labor to shorten the work week to four days. Part of the thinking is like the five-hour work week is somewhat of a relic of the industrial age. And now that all workers are more productive, maybe we should be working less, especially coming out of the pandemic when everybody's getting used to telework or some kind of hybrid office home schedule. This could be something that takes 
the next step and shortens the work week itself to four days. How would this work then for employers? Do they have to adjust pay, you know, overtime, obviously for above 32 hours, but with the five-day work week so kind of ingrained into everything that we're doing currently, and that would take a lot of adjustments on the on behalf of companies and even consumers, I would imagine. It would. Yeah, and I want to point out that this proposal in the assembly is really in the early stages that has yet to be approved by even a committee and then would require votes from both chambers and then uh, approval from the governor. But the proposal as it stands, it says that employers would have to keep employees pay at the same rate, which seems like it means if a person's making a certain amount now, they would have to be earning the same amount for working 32 hours instead of 40 hours. So that creates some complications there that would need to be figured out. I mean, that translates to an immediate 25% raise for those people. And then if you're hiring new employees, do they have to be paid the same amount if, if they're going to be part-time or something like that on an hourly rate? There are definitely things to be worked out. Opposition. I mean, we're hearing things from the California Chamber of Commerce saying, you know, wouldn't be a good a good idea. Are we hearing opposition from any other any other sides? Again, it's still early, but there's the chamber has come out saying that this would just be really costly, and you're trying to promote work life balance by sticking employers with this requirement rather than considering other things that they say should be considered uh, that would expand flexibility in other ways. You know, I've spoken with a another labor attorney firm who was pretty skeptical of it. And I think there is some of that out there. You might see more opposition as the thing moves forward. You mentioned the article that you spoke to uh, a guy named Joe O'Connor. So he's the executive officer of a nonprofit called Four Day Week Global. And what they're doing right now is trying out some type of pilot project with about 38 companies to examine this and kind of see how is revenue, how's everything going on a five-day week versus the four-day week. Where are they in that timeline? They're just getting started. They started this month, actually, this trial. There are some pretty big names participating in it, uh, including a noticed Kickstarter and all kinds of other companies. There's some tech companies, which you might expect, but there's also like Advanced RV, they make high-end Mercedes-Benz motorhomes. There are some financial services firms. There's a catering company and a web design company. There's also some companies that have already adopted this permanently. Bolt in San Francisco is one of them. A couple of other tech companies have done it. I think what they're really getting at is, will employees' productivity increase? And that's kind of as we move to a new workplace model, whether it's telework or hybrid work models, the focus is going to very much be more on productivity in places where this might work and how much a person can get done rather than how many hours they're sitting in their chair or or logged on. That has its own complications because it requires measuring productivity, but that is a lot of what we'll see as people try to figure out whether this works. Some of the proponents of this say this would help with labor shortages. This would increase hiring. I mean, I don't know if that would work out so easily, especially if the companies are incurring more costs now with the employee, the current employees they have. And, you know, what if you still operate on the kind of the five day week, you're going to have to offset employees maybe to cover the whole five days. They'll still work 32, but you have to offset the employees. So there's there's a lot that goes into what could be done here. The adjustments needing to be made. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine it. Would consumers expect the restaurants they go to to be on the open four days a week? Would Friday essentially become another weekend day for all intents and purposes? A lot of those things are are kind of hard to think through. And even if this proposal doesn't become law, I suspect we'll see some of this movement, as we're talking about from business 
to business. And so it would be interesting to see how much of a societal shift happens here. Wes Van Teicher, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. They were um, actually starting to review data for screening for anxiety, depression, and suicide risk for children and adolescents. And they actually started this process before the pandemic, but they and a lot of the people that I talked to stressed that the pandemic really only worsened the mental health crisis among young people. Joining us now is Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Brianna. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about some interesting guidance that could be coming down pretty soon. Experts are going to be recommending that children as young as eight years old should start being screened for anxiety. Obviously, they cite a lot of what was going on throughout the pandemic. Uh, you know, it was taking a toll on, on young kids' mental health. Really, everybody's right. But for kids, you know, being out of school was tough. Some of them lost family members. It was very tough. Isolation, all the other stuff that was going on for everybody else you know, the same with, with uh, the kids. So this could be a recommendation that's coming down. So tell us a little bit more about it. Yes. So this is from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which is a volunteer panel of health experts from across the country that's government-backed that typically makes recommendations for screening or preventive care for a range of diseases and conditions, including mental health. And they were um, actually starting to review data for screening for anxiety, depression, and suicide risk for children and adolescents. And they actually started this process before the pandemic, but they and a lot of the people that I talked to stressed that the pandemic really only worsened the mental health crisis among young people for the reasons that you just mentioned. Now, this seems to be the first time that they're recommending some of this for children that young. They have other guidance. I guess it goes back to 2016, where children between the ages of 12 and 18 should be screened for major depressive disorders. This is a, a, another change, right? They're, they're skewing younger with this now. To be clear, the depression guidance didn't actually change. So they're, they're sort of reiterating that guidance and say that children ages 18 to 12 should be screened for a major depressive disorder. But for anxiety, they should start screening as young as eight years old. And then for the third category, which is suicide risk, the task force actually said that there wasn't enough evidence to make a recommendation either way. So they're not recommending for screening for, for suicide, but they're not recommending against it either. Tell me a little bit about what they saw as far as what was going on with the pandemic. There's some numbers in here that I want to say, but these are older numbers too, right? Uh, so the children ages 6 to 17 that had been diagnosed with anxiety or depression, it increased from 5.4% in 2003 to 8.4% in 2011 to 2012. So, I mean, that's older data still. And then obviously, as I mentioned, we went through the pandemic. So I, I they, it seems like they're seeing... An increase. I don't know if there's hard numbers for that just yet, but they're getting ready for more kids to be experiencing these difficulties. Definitely. And this data, um, to be clear, isn't from the task force itself. This is some of the stuff that we found in our, in our own reporting. But what's been pretty clear looking at the research is that mental health conditions were worsening before the pandemic and by all accounts that we're aware of seem to have gotten worse during the pandemic, both from survey data from kids themselves and from what we're hearing from practitioners and, and doctors that are seeing kids show up in their practices sort of on wait lists to see therapists and in sometimes in, in the ER as well. Do they offer recommendation on treatments? 
Treatment is not a part of this recommendation specifically. This recommendation only focuses on screening, but it's very encouraging for, for kids who do show up positive in the screening. They want them to be able to connect to the resources right away, whether or not it is counseling and cognitive behavioral therapy or some sort of medication. That's usually a decision that's left up to the provider and, and the parents. But in this case, there was no, um, there was no recommendation on, on treatment from the task force. What do one of these screenings look like for anxiety, mental health disorders, all that? I know there's a lot of questionnaires for patients and, and the parents because if we're dealing with younger kids, but uh, what does a typical screening look like? Yeah, so screening tends to be a, a questionnaire um, both for um, patients and for parents. And sometimes it happens, you know, at an annual health checkup. Sometimes it happens in an emergency room or it happens if, if a kid is coming in sick with something in case they, they don't normally make their, their annual checkup. And so it tends to be a questionnaire. And sometimes you don't necessarily have a kid coming in for a mental health concern, they're coming in for a checkup or something else, but then the, the doctor and the patient start talking and then the, the doctor realizes that there are some mental health issues going on for, for the kids. And so it's important, like doctors emphasize that it's really just important to ask and not all of them do. In a survey cited by the task force of primary care physicians, 76% of them said that they thought it was incredibly important to talk to their adolescent patients about their mental health, but only 46% of them always brought up their mental health with their patients. So um, doctors are sort of stressing that this is something important to talk about with, with kids coming in for whatever reason. Brianna Abbott, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.